Welcome to today's Keto Culture podcast. Today, I'm very psyched to have as a special guest, Deanna Sr. Deanna has a doctorate in organizational psychology and is the founder of DSS Advisory Group. We're going to talk today about what being the head of talent in an organization means, as well as compare the difference between climate and culture. And she's got some also some interesting takes on where radical candor and authenticity fits into a leadership style and a, and a climate and a culture of a company. So without further ado, let's start the podcast. Welcome to the Key to Culture podcast, a show that explores the sometimes unseen forces that animate, connect, and unleash thriving companies and teams. You're listening to the Key to Culture podcast, exploring vital energy and life force at work with Tom Kelly. Welcome to the Keto Culture Podcast. I'm really excited to have Deanna Sr. Deanna, welcome. Thanks so much, Tom. Glad to be here. Awesome. So tell us, I, I read on your on the DSS advisory site, among other things, you're an executive coach and a head of talent. I was it caught my eye. What is what what is a head of talent and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, thanks. I, I know. A little bit confusing as that role is called something different in many different industries and different organizations. It's funny, I have been a manager of organizational effectiveness. I have been a director of talent and leadership. I have been a VP of leadership development, organizational effectiveness, and talent. I then took on a talent acquisition role in my last company. So depending on where you are, it's um, similar. And I'd like to tell people it's kind of in business school when you took classes on organizational behavior or you have spoken to an HR person within an organization and they asked you what it felt like to work here. It's all of that kind of stuff. A lot of people are familiar with my field through the um, organizational surveys that you take. Sometimes they're called culture surveys. Sometimes it's, you know, employee engagement survey or, and sometimes they happen, you know, quarterly or monthly. They're on the receiving end of the giving the feedback to people like you. That's right. Exactly. So people like me are interested in what it feels like to work in the company where they are. We're also looking at how they're performing. We're looking at succession planning. So, you know, who's going to be our next SVP of digital marketing? Who's going to sit on the C-suite? What kind of development experiences, leadership experiences are we giving to them and ensuring their stretch assignments so that they're ready when we tap them. Um, it's all about people within the organization and creating the kind of culture that makes our um, highly effective and valued talent want to stay there. So roles in talent used to be called organizational development, organizational effectiveness. Now it's popular to, within a people organization, call it the talent group, are focused on what makes people happy at work, what makes teams effective with one another, what makes leaders um, bring sort of the best out of other people. 
And it's generally within an HR function now called a people function in a lot of sure. tech companies. Yeah. So, so that's a lot of, even in all the things that you've been called, like, how do you prepare for that? Like, what, what is, it's not like becoming a heart surgeon. There's a definite, even anyone could do that progression, even if they're not in the medical field. So how do you, how did you prepare for this? Yeah, thanks for asking. So let's see, there are a lot of paths to that. My path went something like this. I graduated from the University of Michigan um, and was looking for roles in with my psychology and political science degree, what could I do to get into business and make a difference for people? So a helping profession in a in an organization um, for profit or nonprofit business. Mm-hmm. So I graduated and went to Deloitte and worked as an external consultant. That's what many people do, right? They go to law school or to into a consulting firm, and it's sort of your next next step after undergrad. To get the breadth. Um, that's exactly right. There are two paths to getting additional breadth when you're not ready to specialize. Right. So so went to Deloitte and found myself fascinated by the study of work why people choose the jobs that they choose, why they continue to choose to work in places where they're either thriving or disliking the culture, not fitting in, have a lot to complain about and get a lot out of that. I became um, sort of obsessed with people's stories at work. I would spend time in my 20s with people asking them all about what made them tick, what their values were, and then, you know, why they choose the the career path that they chose. So I I spent some time at Deloitte. I ended up in grad school and went, I looked at clinical and organizational psychology programs. Clinical is sort of becoming a therapist and working with people one-on-one. And organizational being the study of systems and teams, sort of a um, group or or organizational level analysis on the same um, clinical psych. So I went the organizational psychology route, mostly because I thought I'd be lonely in private practice. Interestingly enough, I'll I'll come back to that later um, and where I've landed. But I, I... basically went to grad school. I got my master's and PhD in organizational psychology at Teachers College at Columbia here in New York City. Um, I then took uh, a few different, while I was there, I was an intern and um, spent a lot of time at Pfizer and served as an internal consultant, sort of putting my education into practice because I knew pretty early on that I was not gonna go pure academic. Mm-hmm. And then post that became a manager of organizational effectiveness, as I mentioned, at Tiffany and Company, and then spent a couple of years at WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers, and rose to head of talent in both organizations, which, as we just talked about, is, um, is kind of overseeing talent management, leadership development. In one organization, I oversaw talent acquisition. But it's all about um, the L&D, learning and development. It's all about the um, how you get the most out of your people, engage sure. them, teach them, develop them, make sure you're focused on your, on your folks rather than having to hire from the outside. 
didn't you call it the sexy stuff of HR? Yeah, that's right. I've always looked at it as like the the luxury or sexy stuff within HR. You yeah. need to have compensation and benefits and an employee relations department. The talent piece is becoming more a must have rather than a nice to have. But when I began my career, it was more the sexy stuff on top of the base HR. Well, that's why I thought you would be uh, such a great guest is because, yeah, it's the sexy stuff of HR. It's also the more intangible parts like, you know, behavior is in the air. And the, you know, the key to culture podcast is about the, you know, not, um, organizational charts. It's about like, what are the hidden variables that have totally affect businesses? So this is perfect. It's great timing. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, I think it is the the sexy stuff because it's, um, it's not the, those base HR practices, but interestingly enough, as you, you know, unearthed in your key to culture podcast, it's the, it's now the intangibles, what it feels like to work there. And now more and more, it's why people choose a company and why it shows up so well on Glassdoor and attracts the kind of people that want to work there. So, you know, as I say, it's the sexy stuff, but now it's actually the must have in order to get the kind of talent and retain the kind of talent that we're all seeking in business. Yeah. Interestingly, when I do the forensics on how I got interested in this, it goes way back to when I was young and sports teams. Like there was, you could have two sports teams with equal talent and one seems to be like flying high and the other one's just in a fog. And it's like, how did that happen? You know, what is, what, what went into that? It can't just be a speech or a like where they are in the country. It's got to be, it's got to be something. And I've heard you speak in the past about the nuance, even within the nuance between like climate and culture. Can you expound on that a little bit? What is what is your view on those two things and how they interact? Yeah, absolutely. And what you just described about the difference between sports teams, there's a great recent, actually it's not so recent anymore, it's probably a couple of years old, Times article about um, a Google study on the difference between teams, right? That whole idea of some teams have really strong psychological safety and others less so. And the higher functioning, more um, satisfied members who are producing more and greater efficiencies and output are those who experience psychological safety. So it'd be so interesting to know if those sports teams that you're talking about have like higher degree of realism, authenticity, if the guys on the sports teams or women on the sports teams feel that camaraderie toward one another. Um, And that is kind of the value, I think, of climate when you talk about culture. So when I think about the difference between climate and culture, if you envision like a tree where culture is all about the roots, it's all about those deeply embedded aspects of the place the, that come from history, practices, the leaders that founded the organization in the first place. How did they behave in the boardroom yep. when they were first pitching you know, the idea for the company? And then as the organization grew, how they continued to behave one another, treat people as they came into the organization. 
the culture is embedded in an organization, even a new organization, where a lot of the culture comes from the top. And what I'd love to share and teach is the opportunity for leaders and managers around climate or at the top of that tree. So if the roots that are embedded um, and are difficult to change, um, hard to tweak, exist, and one can learn about the culture by you know, checking um, Glassdoor, talking to people who work there, how it feels when you walk in the door, when you interview, all of that stuff is culture. Um, the kind of climate that a leader has the, the control over creating for their team is the opportunity. So within any organization, a leader or a manager, even a small team of three people can create a climate that is filled with um, attributes like the benefits of clear priorities and goals, playfulness, humor, the encouragement of debate, and then yeah, all getting on the same team, knowing one another's families and what makes them tick, the importance of you know sort of bringing your whole self to work. Yep, yep. There are numerous branches on your climate tree that as a leader or a manager, you can control and you can kind of see it as, it, it can serve as an umbrella, even when an organization's culture is in the midst of change going haywire. I always encourage my, my leaders to, take care of what they can take care of and to create the kind of climate that they thrive in. And you can actually do a, a climate check for your organization pretty simply by putting all of those attributes up on a tree and saying like, where do we fall? You know, how green are the leaves on our tree? It's funny. It's, it's a total juxtaposition of man-made climate change in the, in the world. <laughs> That's right. We, we have seen in the past you know what 10 15 years this shift in climate or is that is that culture like what is the all the the companies like zappos and what is it southwest airlines and the legendary nordstrom's legendary customer service is that culture do you think or climate i think it's culture tom i think that organizations have um steadfast long standing cultures and companies do great great expansive work to change the culture of their organization. I've been a part of creating cultural values, impact behaviors, competencies to move a culture from a state to a desired or hopeful, positive future state, right? But a climate can be sort of smaller, intentional, and created by one person. So that's why it's so empowering. It's sort of like, you know, when you think about um, climate change out there in the world, each of us has a part in changing our home relationship to the climate. And so we can do our part and hopefully collectively together, um, we make changes for future generations. But we each can feel empowered to do our part, even though if you're trying to, you know, change the the um, future state of all animal life on this planet no one can do that alone right that's a really good point because the changing a small unit climate you can look at it like well it doesn't still a it's still a lousy company but no it's it actually the the small unit takes on a whole different like in in your example of recycling in a 
particular family, that if that family is aligned with their purpose of doing this, it almost doesn't matter what kind of impact they're having worldwide. They get to f- reap the, the benefits of feeling that way about what they're doing. That's right. And they become positive deviants. And I can imagine other families look to that family and say, what are they doing different? Why are they feeling so great about their contributions to the world? I want to do that too, right? And what happens when we all do that in our own homes behind closed doors? Well, then we're actually changing the ozone layer. So it's the same thing in an organization. It's I love, and as a talent professional, what I love to do is create models of positive deviance. So those parts of the organization in this really tough culture where um, you know people aren't feeling equal or able to express their point of view or there's bad press out there for that organization, there's pockets of positive deviance who are doing things really well under a a particular leader who has created a a certain climate. And I love putting those leaders on stage to say in a town hall or, you know, in a, in a, in a larger opportunity for showcasing, look what these guys are doing and look at some of the attributes of that leader. And mostly it's the team talking about it because the leader has imbibed something so special down and they're working beautifully with one another. And guess what? They work really well outside of their group throughout the organization too. So it spreads. Right. They're shining and it it raises everyone up. So let's, let's drill down about creating a climate, I guess. Yeah. it, It feels like climate it feels like actions affect the climate right there, and then also it, it seeps into the culture. So what you I've heard you talk about, um, you know, radical candor and authenticity and those soft skills. Like why are they effectors in 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 climate? Yeah, exactly. And and I think the the um, what we can do in an organization is work at both levels, right? As as a talent professional, my team is working on changing the culture within the organization in small ways. So we're putting in, you know, different programming and um, and listening to the aggregate results of an employee survey. So there are things that we're doing at WW, for example, we created a, a series called WW Inspire. And that was intended to change the culture of the place with our CEO at the helm of, it's really important that you hear voices from the outside. And she brought in authors and we had incredible speakers who talked about topics like the myth of the nice girl, right? So we're trying to change the culture of the company. But climate is so interesting because there's power in that for an individual manager or leader. If you are responsible for one, two, three people, an organization of 60, you have the ability to impact their lives. And so the kinds of things that an individual can do is express themselves through authenticity. And I love the whole practice of radical candor. I did not invent it and I espouse it so authentically. I love this idea of, you know, a two by two of like, how much do you care about the people that work on your team and how direct are you in the feedback that you give them? 
right? I'm holding up my hands like a, you know, you could see my two by two. And the idea is, and there, there was a great TED talk, like a Sheryl Sandberg disciple who talked all about what Cheryl did for her when she moved to California and cared about her being so in such an extreme way. Invited the ums her. in her talk. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. She gave her the feedback about the ums in her talk to the boardroom. And she did that in such a direct way. She didn't have to provide that feedback. She didn't have to offer the gift of sharing with her like what what she could do differently next time right it's hard to give feedback and i talk to my clients about that all the time when someone gives you feedback like you have to sit back and and say thank you and follow up a 360 with a thank you because you know it's not easy to give feedback and it's easier not to so the idea of that directness and really caring about your team is so climate enhancing, right? If you have that kind of relationship with each of the individuals on your team who are your direct reports, they're more likely to create that kind of climate for their team members. And so when you're a leader over, you know, say 60 individuals, the greater the climate you create for your seven direct reports, you know, sort of feeds down. And you're changing lives because our work lives are... You know, we spend more of our time at work than we do at home, as we all talk about and you've talked about on this podcast. So the the importance of radical candor for an individual leader to um, to really take in and use their their best attributes if they are, you know, direct work on the work on the caring part. If you're, you know, toxically altruistic and need to work on the directness, make sure you sort of bring that into your practice or learn from others who do it well so that you can create the kind of climate that we were just talking about, Tom. Yeah, and the in, in hearing you talk, it just really drives it home that the each each rung is necessary for to do the other ones. Like authenticity and vulnerability are completely necessary to do radical candor. Because I think yeah. one of the things one of the things in that radical candor book was, um, you know, you try to do radical candor with no trust and it's just like an assault. But if, right. if, if you know the person cares for you and then they give it, it's it totally can make it in. Yeah. 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 And in my experience, I've been lucky and I've had really tough experiences under leaders. My greatest model of radical candor was um, my boss at Tiffany, who cared about us to such a great extent shown through you know having us over for barbecues at his house right the entire team and and leaders do that but he like loved feeding us and then he gave us some really tough feedback you know it was like both of our our souls and our minds were fed and we were interested in hearing what he had to say because there was so much it was it was done out of kindness and furthering your growth. So I've just been lucky to have some models of leadership in my life. So I try to bring those examples to my practice and share with clients the importance of being the most of who they are. So another example is I have a a client right now is a CEO founder um, of a restaurant. And he 
is, you know, self-proclaimed sort of introvert, analytic. He's not um, charismatic or doesn't, he sees others with some of those qualities and says like, teach me to be that. And we've completely shifted his frame on, you don't need to be something that you're not. Um, and getting down to what he does really well with his team is, um, encourage, recognize, set clear goals, align to his strategy, form, you know, their roles and responsibilities are clear and different from one another, but they're really encouraged to collaborate. Like he does some amazing things that set him apart as the kind of leader that you want to follow. So that's, you know, there was a great HBR article a long time ago that the title was, would I want to be led by you? Something like that. Right. And I always, you know, sort of think about that with clients now, um, who would want to be led by you and why? And it's not always charisma that draws followers. It's the authentic expression of who you are spoken and written in a, in a radically candid way. Yeah. Yeah. You and I, a couple of weeks ago, were at a call to men event and they had Curtis Martin the former, or the Hall of Fame running back, and he was talking about his role models as male, healthy masculinity uh, role models, and he, he mentioned Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells was no, he has an external um, opinion of, he's one of the toughest coaches there is, but he must have totally had these guys trust so he could, to, it's what we're talking about with the feedback, he could totally lay into them because they knew he cared about them. And then exactly. that that guy takes it into into the rest of his life as that's what he responded to. Really yeah. incredible. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's so interesting. And you can have that tough exterior or a really affable, um, gregarious exterior. And then when you bring it down to your team member and go really high on caring and really high high on directness, you can change their lives and the climate for their teams. Right. Amazing. So let's, we, we're, we're deep into the podcast. So I want to get into, we've discussed in the past, a very interesting uh, project you have coming up. Let us know a little bit about this leadership exchange. It sounds, um, sounds like it's, it's, it's not happening now. It's, it's projected, correct? Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Tom. So, um, so after being a head of talent for 20 plus years um, in different organizations, actually rose to head of talent, I was probably head of talent for a decade. Um, I've now taken on a new venture in my life. So now I've, as I, as I mentioned earlier in my career, I thought about clinical psychology, working with individuals and went the route of organizations, systems, and became, you know, a, a leader within an organization myself um, with 60 members of my team and six direct reports. Most recently, I've, I've decided to focus um, back on individuals and teams, and I've opened my own executive coaching practice, which you mentioned earlier, called DSS Advisory. I'm working with individuals as a coach. I'm working with teams of cohorts of individuals and providing them with individual coaching. I'm working with intact teams to bring to them assessments. I 
you know, love to use I'm in, and I'm certified in anything I can get my hands on. The Hogan, MBTI, DISC, FIROB, Strength Finders, Five Dysfunctions of Teams. I mean, I've just sort of collected certifications over, sure. over the course of my career and used them in the organizations where, where I got to practice with teams. Um, and so now I'm focused on individuals outside of organizations and also on groups. So I, I work with a number of different organizations, but now I'm working with an organization called Chief, which is female executives who are um, brought together into cohorts of like different, in, similar industry, similar level at different companies. And I'm working with them monthly and I'm really enjoying the, the group formation of what they're able to, to create together, the kind of climate that they create for one another that they can then bring back to their organizations. You mentioned I, I am also working on my own version of that called the Leadership Exchange, LEX for short, where I'll bring together men and women who are... Um, craving that um, team environment. Right now it's founders and CEOs of, of companies that they've started themselves to share best practices, achieve camaraderie, to learn sort of the story of their careers and leadership lessons and focus on their futures and their presence and sort of build that, that sort of bond where they can support one another and bring in ideas and external partnerships or, you know, send a statement of work to one another and say, what do you think of it? So Lex is this opportunity for founders of startups, CEOs to come together to build their team because it's lonely at the top. Awesome. Sounds cool. Where do people find out about this? Yeah, they can contact me directly. Um, they can learn more, to, more about me at my website, which is www.dss-advisory.com. Or you can email me directly, Deanna, D-E-A-N-N-A, at dss-advisory.com. Fantastic. We're about to close, but what is, I guess, a company that when when does a company know they need your services or or this type of um assistance what 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 is a what do you see as one or a few of the like in health you know uh, there's a symptoms what are what are the symptoms <laughs> right that's well asked um so i i work with organizations who know individuals in transition. So sometimes those individuals are coming back from maternity leave. Sometimes they've been promoted into a role and they're navigating um, unchartered territory or waters that you know would be helpful to have someone sort of take a look at from the outside who is following their agenda, but using radical candor, right? So individuals in transition, those who are moving from an SVP, EVP level into the C-suite and they're navigating a board for the first time or um, a CEO's elevated expectations for them in a new role. I, I generally work with people who are 
navigating something new in their work lives and are trying to figure out what they take from their toolkit and what they can put into practice for where they're headed. So we create an open environment of trust where it feels a little bit less lonely at the top. Gotcha. So you're you're like a guide for these people that you described are all going into the frontiers or the edge of their, you know, they're past the edge and you're the guide that helps them navigate until they're stabilized. Is that? Yeah, but I think you're giving me too much credit in the equation. It's really my, you know, sort of um, being there to help them to follow their goals, outline what those are create some accountability agenda. And I generally use an assessment. So we're diving deep into self-discovery and creating self-awareness. How do I generally show up when I'm under stress? What happens when um, my values are in misalignment with the organizational culture? How do I navigate this place? When is the right time for me to think about other options? What kind of courageous conversations do I need to have with my boss in order to get my voice heard? That sort of thing. Yeah, there's a mirror element. Like you're one of our most important tools in all of this work, especially initially in working with someone, is just saying, do you see exactly happening? Yeah. Exactly. And a 360 is very helpful to that process, I find. It's like, even if you can't look in the mirror because it's painful, the data you kind of can't ignore and helpful. That's right. If there's a consensus about you, then, you know, don't trust what you think of you. I love it. Well, this has been fantastic. Really loved talking to you about this stuff. We could go on forever, really. I know. I feel the same way. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. I mean, there's any cul-de-sac we could go hang out for a long time. So um, maybe we'll do it again. Sounds great. Cool. Um, I'll have all the, links that you mentioned they'll they'll be with the podcast and uh yeah we'll go from there just thank you so much and uh have a great rest of your day you too tom thanks again all right awesome thank you for listening to the key to culture podcast sponsored by quantius the premier marketing agency for emerging technology quantius smart fast curious